Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter number 3. Mark chapter number 3. For the past couple of Sunday mornings, we've been preaching a little series on what we have called transcendental truths. And the reason we've called it that is because in these passages of Scripture, the Lord is typically asked a question, uh, and normally by His enemies, although we'll see a bit of a deviation from that this morning. And usually it's asked in order to trip Him up. And the Lord would answer in a way that went above their question, that went deeper than their question, that went beyond their question. And by doing so, He would very often reveal some things about Himself and about them. In fact, what we've said is that a transcendental truth was given for three reasons. One was to elevate the conversation, to talk about something deeper than what they had asked. Two was to expound deep truth. He would often reveal something that could have been gleaned in no other way. We talked a couple weeks ago about the question concerning the tribute money and the image, and Christ used that to reveal that, yeah, it's true we have earthly responsibilities, but we also have a heavenly responsibility. And just as that coin bore the earthly image of Caesar and therefore belonged unto Caesar, we bear the heavenly image of God and therefore belong unto the Lord. And then often he would use it to expose his enemies. In other words, he would reveal what was in their heart. And I'll tell you this, if you want to know what's in your heart, come to the Lord. Amen? Don't ask yourself, because the heart's desperately wicked and deceitful above all. There's all kinds of people walking around in the world today that have been deceived by their own heart. And uh, they they truly, genuinely believe something. Listen, for a man to strap a vest to his chest and and push a button, uh, that's a man that really believes in something. Uh, for a person to go out and, and, and bike up and down the road and go out and knock on doors and uh, like Baptists should, amen, uh, but to do that diligently day in and day out, that man believes in something, amen? And uh, the only problem is they believe in the wrong thing. So faith is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. It's a means to Christ. And often there are people whose hearts have deceived them But if you come to the Lord, hey, listen, looking into the perfect law of liberties, like looking into a a mirror or a looking glass, it it reflects back who you really are. And so they'd talk to the Lord and they'd ask Him these questions and they were trying to find out something about Him. They were trying to expose Him, but He would use these questions to expose them. So that's sort of the loose definition we've given of what a transcendental truth is. Well, I admit to you this morning that the people whom the Lord is speaking to in our passage today, though they do stand in opposition of Him in this moment, they are not typically His enemies, but even so, what the Lord says and reveals about them speaks volumes about a deep truth and about their hearts, and certainly it answers and elevates the conversation in a unique way. Mark chapter number 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 31. Mark chapter 3, verse 31, we'll read down to verse 35. Word of God says, There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him. They said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brethren without, seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time you've given us. Now bless your word, Lord. Bless your people through your word. 
Uh, Lord, we, I, I have come this morning as a preacher, wholly insufficient for the task at hand. No amount of study or preparation or, or notes can, can displace the, the deep need we have of you today. So, Father, help us to sense that need, to see that need. Help us to seek for the satisfaction of that need in Your presence. Lord, I pray You'd speak to our hearts distinctly, directly about our lives, what must be changed, what needs to be changed, how we can be drawn closer unto Thee. And I pray we'd receive it with a spirit of obedience. And Lord, that we would be made more into the image of Christ. For it's in His precious name that we ask all these things. Amen. By the Lord's help this morning, I want to try to preach to you on a transcendental truth about relationships. A transcendental truth about relationships. And more specifically, about family relationships. Now, this could of course apply to any relationship in life. But most of us, the deepest relationships we have are with those that we call our own family. Uh, even when a young man or a young lady gets interested in, in uh, someone of the opposite gender. I said someone of the opposite gender. And... Uh, and, and begins to pursue them, that generally winds up with what? Uh, uh, that, that young man will leave his father and mother and will cleave to that woman and they twain will be of one flesh. They'll become a family. In other words, most of the deep relationships in our life are family relationships. And yet the Lord reveals in this passage to the waiting uh, question of His mother and brethren that there are relationships and there are relationships. In other words, he does not invalidate the relationship that they have or the claim they have on him. But he does reveal that there are binding truths and binding realities that make for deeper relationships than what we typically think of as the connecting forces in our lives. Now, in order to preach this effectively, I've got to, before I even get into talking about what the Lord says, I've got to say a word this morning, number one, about the context of the sibling's rejection. There are times when looking at the life of the Lord Jesus and His response, if we don't know the context, we'll misjudge the Lord. Uh, for instance, there was a lady came one day whose daughter was demon-possessed, and, and she cried to the Lord and said, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the Bible says the Lord didn't even look at her. He didn't even respond to her. He just ignored this woman. When she pled with him, he said, I'm, I'm not sent unto Gentiles. She was a Gentile woman. She said, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the nation of Israel. Now, on the face of it, that seems harsh and cruel. But he was trying to bring this woman to a place of recognition about how she was, who she was, and what she needed him to be. She didn't need a Messiah. She needed a Savior. She had no claim on the Messiah. She wasn't a Jew. But she needed a Savior. And so finally she says, Truth, Lord, Lord, not calling Him Messiah or Son of David or Christ, but Lord. She, she says, that's true, that you, it's not fit to take the bread meant for children and give it to dogs. But the dogs sit underneath the table and eat the crumbs that fall from the children's laps. In other words, saying, hey, I don't need you to be my Messiah, just be my Savior. Amen. Just change my life, just save me. But on the face of it, if you don't understand that context, it seems harsh. Well, in the same respect, in the passage before us, if we don't understand just exactly where his brethren were spiritually and what they were asking of him, it would 
doesn't seem that his behavior is harsh. I mean, listen, I hope if you're at the workplace and your mama or your brother or your sister calls you on the telephone, I would hope you'd answer the phone. If somebody came, one of your family members knocked at the door. Some of y'all may have learned better than that by now. I don't know. But I would hope you would answer the door. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. We have to understand that there was a context surrounding this. And they were not just asking for an audience with Jesus. They were asking for the authority and attendance of Jesus. So what do you mean, preacher? They didn't want to go in. They wanted Him to come out. Uh, Let me say it this way. Notice first off in the Word of God the disbelief of His brethren. Now, the Bible's very clear about this, that up until and after the Lord Jesus was risen from the grave, it would appear that none of His brethren, and He had several brothers, that none of them believed on Him or believed what He said. Of course, James, the half-brother of Jesus, ultimately becomes a believer. But the majority of them did not believe that He was who He said He was. Mary had some semblance of belief. It seems apparent uh, she certainly did believe that He had the power of God. But even her belief is at times shown to be limited. She certainly didn't always treat Him with the reverence that the Son of God is worth. So when these people come to Him, they're not coming to Him to receive teaching. They're not coming to receive truth. But they are coming in death. Disbelief. The Bible says in John 1, 11, this very familiar Scripture says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. We have an example of this in John chapter number 7. Verse number 2 says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto Him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. And then John tells us this, For neither did his brethren believe in him. That exchange about the feast was sarcastic. It was cutting. It was biting. They were saying, you say that you're the Son of God. You say that you're the Messiah. You'll say that to us, but go out and tell other people and go out and show it and go out and prove it to the world because they didn't believe that He could. Even later on in the ministry of Christ, after the disciples have been called and multitudes were coming to Jesus, lives were being changed, miracles were being worked, surely they would believe. No, the Bible says in Mark 3.20, the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. The disciples and Jesus couldn't even have dinner. There were so many people coming for help. And when His friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on Him, for they said, He is beside Himself. So, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying it's abundantly clear that the family of the Lord Jesus did not believe He was who He said that He was. They gave, gave no credence. They gave no reverence. They gave no respect to the relationship that he purported to have with his heavenly father. You remember when he was a young man, uh, Mary comes and finds him after he's been missing for three days and says, I and my father have sought thee sorrowing. And Christ responds back, says, How is it that you sought me? You sought me sorrowing? Who is it that you sought me with? Your, your, my, my father? That's not my father. Uh, he says, I, I must wish you not that I must be about my father, capital F. Father's business. Now, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying they did not believe in Him. We see their disbelief. Notice something else that I think is instructive. Notice their distance. It's okay. We're going to preach here in a second. Notice their distance. Uh, The three gospel writers that recorded this all say it in different ways. None of them are disharmonious. None of them contradict. But in Mark's uh, gospel, we're told that they came and standing without sent unto Him calling Him. So here's a multitude of people gathered around Jesus. They will not go into the multitude. Instead, they stand at the outside calling to Him. Matthew tells a similar language, says his mother and brethren stood without 
desiring to speak with him. Luke says a little bit differently. He says, could not come at him for the press. Now, I think Luke is being gracious there. Uh, you say, preacher, why do you believe that? Well, everybody else could get to Jesus. And if they really wanted to get to him, they probably could. But their excuse was, we can't get to him. There's too many people around him. This thing's grown out of hand. He's a fanatic. He's beside himself. We need him to walk away from that and come out to us. Say, so what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. Uh, they wanted to stand afar from the teaching and truth and ministry of the Lord Jesus. They believed they had a claim upon Him because of the blood that ran through their veins. And yet they were not willing to acknowledge and recognize the spiritual truth surrounding His ministry. They did not want to come into the group. And that's, that's symbolic, man. More than, more than just physically they didn't want to go into the group. Spiritually they didn't want to believe. They didn't want to enter into His teaching. Notice their demand. Now stop and think about this. Uh, here they are. They don't believe He's who He says He is. They could go in and see Him, but they don't want to be around that crowd. They don't want to be around those... Uh, let me say it again. They don't want to be around that crowd. They don't want to be around that crowd that believes in Him. They don't want to be around that crowd that knows Him. They don't want to be around that crowd that worships Him. They're sure enough not going to worship Him. They've known Him since He was young. And there they stand with a, with a cynic's eye and say, No, I, I, I'm not, I've seen it all. I'm good. I'm okay. So they stand on the outside. And here is effectively what they're saying. Jesus, leave your teaching. Leave your ministry, leave the multitudes, and come out to where we are. Because we have a claim upon you that they do not have upon you. I'm going to say a lot of things in the message this morning, but can I just sum it up before I even get to the preaching of it by saying this. There's a lot of us at times in our life, we have to live with family relationships, friend relationships, people that claim to love us and maybe to a degree they do that choose to stand outside the spiritual realm of who we are, of what we stand for, of what God's done in our life, and beckon us to come out from that place. Let me say it this way. You know what they were wanting? They wanted Him to choose. You can either have that, Jesus, or you can have us, but you're going to have to make a choice. There are times, and I thank the Lord, I was raised in a good Bible-believing home, and I was raised in a home where I was encouraged to, to know the Lord and to believe on the Lord. But sadly, a lot of folks do not have that same experience. And a lot of times they are placed in a position of having to choose between being faithful to the Lord or their family. Reminds me of a story that the Bible tells us in Luke chapter number 9 about some men that come to Jesus and they claim they want to be disciples. And I believe they were genuine. I don't believe they were putting on. I believe they really did want to follow the Lord. But they had some obstacles in their life. This is another, by the way, instance where if we're not careful, we'll misjudge the Lord. But it says in Luke 9, 59, He said unto another, Jesus said to another man, said, follow me. But He said, the man replied back to the Lord and said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Now, if you're not careful, you'll misjudge the Lord there. You'll say, boy, the Lord's cruel. He wouldn't even let that man bury his daddy. Can I ask you a question in return? If this man's daddy was laying there waiting to be buried, why was he standing there talking to Jesus in the first place? So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'm saying this. This man's father was not dead. Uh, this man's father wasn't on the brink of being dead. But rather, what this man was saying was he was saying, I have, I have earthly responsibilities and I cannot accept any spiritual responsibilities until I first meet those earthly ones. My father, I'm waiting on him to die so that I can see to his affairs. And in that context, the Lord Jesus says, don't waste your life upon temporal matters. 
let the dead bury their dead. There was another fellow right after him that the Lord looked at him and said, follow me. And, and, and he looked at the Lord and, and said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Now that seems reasonable. I don't think that's an unreasonable request. Lord, let me go home and say goodbye. But how does the Lord answer? Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know why a man can't plow forward if he's looking backwards? Because he's got his eyes off the wrong direction. It's a good way to get hurt. It's a good way to make a mess of your uh, of your furrow. It's a good way to mess up the work. And what Jesus was saying is this. If it was just a matter of going home and saying goodbye, I wouldn't mind that Elijah let Elisha do that very thing. But that's not what you're wanting to do. You're going to go home and you're going to choose them over the Lord. In other words, let me say this, there are times, and if it's not like this in your life, bless God. You ought to pray for those that it is. But there are people in this world that sometimes have to make a choice. Sometimes they have siblings. Sometimes they have mothers or fathers or, or children or grandchildren that say, listen, I ain't going to be around you if you're going to talk about that Jesus stuff. I don't mind you going down to that church, but you ain't going to bring it home. We see it every year, man. we got camp on our hearts right now. And it's sad to say, man, but we see it every year. We see kids that come up there and, and their parents, uh, they, they saw that $35 price tag and said, oh boy, let's go take a cruise, amen. And so they, they give us their kids. You say, does that bother you? No, not one bit. If we can win them to Christ for eternity, hey, that's a small price to pay. That don't bother me. I'm, I don't mind pulling the wool over on the devil, not one bit. But they, they, they'll, they'll just get, but they have no interest in spiritual things. And these kids, they'll go up to camp and they'll give their heart to Christ and, and they'll get on fire for God and they see the power of God. They see the reality of God. And then oftentimes they come back home and mama's standing there or daddy's standing there, grandparents standing there with a big old bucket of ice water just waiting to put out their fire. Sometimes they have to choose. I'm saying this, you don't always have to choose, but sometimes, sadly, your family make you choose. And in that reality, Christ responds by saying this, verse 33. He answered them saying, Who is my mother or my brother? Now, what is the Lord really asking here? He's really saying, What are relationships? What designates a person my mother? What designates a person my brother or my sister? He looks around, the Bible says in verse 34, on them which sat about him and said, Behold my mother and... Brethren, verse 35, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my mother, or my brother, excuse me, and my sister and mother. We have in this passage the context of the siblings' rejection. You won't understand what's going on here until you understand what they're doing. They did not just want an audience with him. They didn't just want to talk to him for a few moments. They didn't just want to relay a message. They were saying, leave that lifestyle. Leave what you're doing. Come to us. Turn your back on that. Come to us. We have a claim on you. And in the light of that, consider the commentary of the Savior's reply. The Lord says some astonishing things here. In fact, I marked down three of them that I think maybe will frame the remainder of our message. Three things that the Lord reveals in His reply. First off, let me say this. He, he, he reveals to them that relationships are real. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher. I thought what the Lord's saying is that their relationship was meaningless, that it didn't matter, and that the relationship to God is all that mattered. But can I say this to you? The statement that the Lord makes would have no force without an implicit understanding that relationships are real and meaningful in the first place. 
Later on, the Lord would command His followers to take up their cross and follow Him and would say they would sometimes have to turn their back on their family in order to do it. And He says, you have to forsake all and follow Me. In other words, family relationships were part of that all that He was talking about. There were a lot of things He didn't say you had to forsake. I think if He had probably said you've got to forsake uh, root canals, He would have had a whole bunch of folks sign up. If he had said, you've got to forsake paying your taxes, you would have had a whole group of people sign up. The fact that he lists these things implies that they are meaningful. And he would not have said, who is my mother? Who are my brethren? Did he not recognize that those earthly relationships are real, they're meaningful, they matter. And before I even get into the deeper truth of it, can I say this? Our family does matter. It does matter. It is important. This passage would have no force without first recognizing that there's something special about the family relationships that we enjoy. The Lord endorsed the idea of family. In fact, God Himself instituted the family. The first thing He ever instituted was the family. He created man. He looked. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. He's going to get into too much trouble. He don't know how to cook. He'll, uh, he'll be buried under dirty ditches. Let's get him a helpmate. So she, He created for man, woman. The Bible says He looked... And behold, it was very good. Very good. He's pleased with it. The Bible says, Whoso findeth a wife, uh, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor with the Lord. God's not against family. The Bible says if a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an infidel. He's denied the faith. And can I remind you of this, that, uh, that paltry earthly relationships are but a faint shadow of spiritual realities. And when God could have chosen to communicate to mankind the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity, He could have communicated it any way that He wanted to. He could have described that relationship as any number of things, but He reveals Himself to humanity as the Father and Jesus as His Son. There's no greater endorsement of the meaningfulness, of the strength of family relationships than the fact that God's a Father and God has a Son. (laughs) Jesus Himself said in John 3.35, The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into His hand. Uh, In Matthew chapter 15, which we'll review again here in a moment, but in verse number 3, a very important passage, the Bible says, He answered and said unto them, said unto uh, the Pharisees that were, that were questioning Him, said, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. In other words, he's rebuking the Pharisees because they had figured out a ceremonial workaround to the responsibility to honor the father and mother. They would buy their way out of that responsibility. And Jesus rebukes them and says, You polluted and perverted. What was the purpose of that commandment? Because God values and respects the family relationship and the family dynamic. In Mark chapter number 10, verse number 6, you still with me this morning? Jesus says, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What God therefore hath joined together, let not man put asunder. 
He said, Preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying this, that the very fact that the Lord Jesus talks about this issue is an indication that He knows that family relationships matter. They're real, they're meaningful. Think through the Gospels. Think how many parables the Lord Jesus taught about a father and a son or a father and two sons. We preach all the time. One of our favorite passages that we love to reflect on is on the prodigal son. Well, what's that about? That's about family relationships. I'm telling you this, your family's not perfect. Mine's not either. And if you want, we can get a cup of coffee and try to compare who's is crazier. But they're our family. They're the only ones we got. And listen, we better love them. Relationships are real. But then I think he reveals a second truth. Are you with me? He says relationships are real, but he also reveals that relationships are rooted in some things. Listen, it's meaningful to be a family member. And it, it would not be meaningful if it was not full of meaning. So what do you mean by that, preacher? I'm saying this, that family relationships are more than just labels. We have family and we love family because we share some things. You know, I found that most relationships in life are really based upon about three things. One is a common lineage. You and your family are family because you have the same ancestors. Typically because you have the same blood running through your veins. Now, I'm not trying to in any way denigrate people in an adopted family. Uh, there's a, a similar application there. You've grown up uh, with, with, with a father, with a mother. You share that with your siblings. But I'm saying there is strength in the reality of recognizing that me and my siblings, you and your siblings, our mothers, our fathers, our children, we have the same blood, the same character traits. You can look at my boy and see he's my boy. Uh, You can look at my family and see that that's where I came from because we share a common lineage. Remember this, it's going to come up later. we got the same blood going through our veins. And then I think there's a second thing relationships are rooted in. Now Christ is going to go on to reveal that spiritual relationships are rooted in some things too. But all this is based upon an earthly or a physical or a a human reality. Uh, Relationships are are rooted in a common lineage. I find number two, uh, relationships are often rooted in common lives. So what do you mean, preacher? we got the same experiences. I was raised in the same home that my siblings were raised in. I was raised with the same daddy. I was raised with the same mama. And I praise God for that. I know not everybody gets that. But there are certain things that I could say to my siblings that you wouldn't never understand. But they know what I mean. They understand. There are certain things, certain experiences. We know what it is uh, to, to be fed out of the same pan. We know what it is to be whooped by the same belt. We know what it is uh, to be fussed at by the same parents. Amen. We, we know what it is to be loved by the same people. We have shared common experiences in life. You know, this is true beyond family relationships, typically. And this is the reason, by the way, that support groups are such a thing. Because people need the support of folks that have been through similar circumstances, similar events. And even us here today, I don't want to preach my sermon before I preached it, but even us here today, we're bonded together because we've experienced some of the same things. So relationships are based out of a common lineage, based very often out of common experiences. And this is why even adopted brethren or half-brethren, step-brethren often have a a close bond because they lived very many of them in the same house. They had the same parents. They had the same experiences. But often I've found that relationships are rooted in common loves. A, A marriage relationship is a good example. You married your wife because you love her. And I hope she married you because she loves you. No promises, amen? 
I knew, hey, listen, that's a good thing about being broke. I knew my wife loved me. When you're broke and ugly, there ain't no reason for him to marry you <laughs> except love. I didn't have to worry. She wasn't after my money. I was after my money. Amen? But uh, very often, relationships are built out of loving the same thing. And again, I don't want to get into my message before I get into it, but, but we're here today because we love some of the same things. And very often in a family, sadly it's not always the case, but very often in a family, when they begin to have children, that love blossoms, it grows. You know why? Because they have a common love of the same thing. Uh, the, one of the sad truths, this happens in a lot of families, uh, when they have children, if, if the parents are not diligent, if the husband and wife are not diligent to maintain their love relationship with each other, then very often once the kids are all gone, they struggle. You know why? Because 40 years ago, uh, they, they loved each other, but now after the kids are gone, they got nothing to talk about. And they fell out of love with one another. Preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying that love is very often a common indicator or a common bond or connective reality that causes relationships. Now stop and think about this with me. He, realized, he, he reveals to us relationships are real. Relationships are rooted in some things. But then he says this. Here's these people. Here's his mama that nursed him when he was a baby, that carried him uh, when his body was an infant. Here are his brethren, uh, and and they share the same blood of their mother uh, through their veins, and they've been raised in the same home. They've experienced the very same thing. They have all these connections, right? And then he looks and he says, but you know, at the end of the day, there are deeper connections than the connections we share. There are superlative connections. He reveals this. Listen carefully. Relationships are relative. Relative. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, they don't live in a vacuum in and of themselves. They, can I tell you something? I love, I, I love everybody in this room. I, I, this is deja vu. I was saying this just the other day. I don't know why we've done gone sappy around here. Amen? I love everybody in this room. Don't you feel good? Valentine's Day coming up and everything. I love everyone in this room. I don't love you the way I love my children. I don't. Sorry, I don't. I probably don't want to strangle you the way I want to strangle my kids sometimes, but but I don't love you the way I love my children. I don't love you as deeply. I, I hope I never have to choose, but if I ever did, if Walridge Baptist Church ever took vote and said preacher's gonna have to gonna have to give his kids away, I'm sorry. I'd pack up our little Kia and we'd go down the road with our kids in tow. Sorry, that's just the truth of it. I love my wife. I love my wife more than I love my children. I said, I love my wife more than I love my children. My wife is a priority above my children. She was there before they got there. And I I, I hope to God she'll be there when they're gone. (laughs) She is my priority. See, the truth is, relationships are relative. And you don't have to, and some people never learn this in life. You'll meet people in life, they only ever have one friend at a time. Because they think everything's a competition. And that's not the case. I, I, I can love you and, and love you all. I can love my kids and still love you. I can love my wife and still love my kids. Relationships are relative. Christ taught this truth in strong language that is easily misconstrued or misunderstood. Listen to what He said in Luke chapter 14. Verse 25, There went great multitudes with Him, and He turned and said unto them, If any man come to Me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be My disciple. A lot of people have struggled with that. Why is the Lord calling us to hate our, our, our mother and father and wife and children and brethren and sisters? Don't forget, He even says in your own life. 
What does he mean when he says that? Well, let me let God define it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, It's hard to find places where God says He hates people. There are places in the Bible where, where the Bible says God hates people. There are places where it says God's angry with people. The Bible says in Romans 9.13, As it is written, Jacob have I loved. So here we have a family relationship. Jacob and Esau. God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So what does he mean by that? Well, Malachi chapter 1 is what he's quoting when Paul writes that. Verse 2, this is what God said. Uh, Speaking to Israel, he said, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob and hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. In other words, God's not saying He has personal animus against Esau, but He's saying only one child could carry the messianic line. Only one child could carry the blessing of God in that way. And the Bible says that He chose Jacob instead of Esau, that the election might stand of grace and and not of works. By the way, He's not talking about individual soul salvation. He's talking about the fate and destiny of Israel as a nation. And so He's saying, I did not choose Jacob because he was great or because he was wonderful, but I chose him because I had to choose one. It could not go down both lines. And so I chose Jacob because I loved him, or choosing him expressed my love of him, and not choosing Esau can be manifested or expressed as hatred. In other words, it's not a statement of personal passion or animus or displeasure or disdain but rather it is a cold, calculated declaration of God saying, I chose Jacob, I did not choose Esau. Christ reveals this truth in Matthew chapter number 10, saying much the same thing that He said in Luke 14. He said in verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. You remember Christ had said in another place that a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and amongst his own kin. Jesus said, when my ministry is finished, my earthly ministry, I'm going to make men choose. They're going to have to make a choice about what they're going to do with me. And that choice will be so big and meaningful and powerful that it's going to break families apart. It's going to set people at variance one to another. He says this in verse number 37, He that loveth his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. In other words, he is saying this, that God does not demand that we forsake our love of our family or their love of us unless placed in a position where we must choose. And we certainly, even if those relationships can coexist one with another... Our love of the Lord should be so great that, listen now, remember, to love is to choose, to hate is to not choose. We should love Him more than our family. What does that mean? We should choose Him above our family relationships. See, relationships are relative. I hope you never have to choose between your family and the Lord. But the reality is this. We live in a world where very often the mystery of iniquity that already works is in control and authority in people's lives. Very often, that sword comes into our family and people that we love and people that we cherish and people that we really care about will very often stand outside the circle and say, you choose that life or you choose me. 
You choose to live for Him or you choose to love me. And we are ever, ever presently, daily, we are faced with decisions where we must decide, even if those relationships can coexist, where does the Lord rank in all of it? I don't believe the Lord is pleased when a man forsakes his family. But I do believe, listen now, I do believe. In fact, the Bible commands that we ought not forsake our family. The Bible commands we ought to take care of them, that we ought to work, that we ought to labor, that we ought to see to their needs. But I do believe the Lord requires that we never allow our love for our family to displace our love for Him. See, He reveals to us that relationships are relative. They can exist on on simultaneous planes and they can hold different forces and sways in our life. What then is He teaching His disciples when He says, Behold my mother and my brethren. He's saying this, I have connections to those people outside the circle. And if they want to come in the circle, I'd love to have them in here. But if they're asking me to walk away from these connections in order to sustain those connections, I'm sorry, but I will not do it. Because these are my brethren. These are my mother and my sister. Here's what he's communicating. I'm going to give this to you very quick and we'll be done. The concept of spiritual relationships. Can I tell you something? It's true you only have one family. It's equally true there's only one family of God. you got one mama. you got one daddy. you got a number of brethren. But, but who they are is who they are. But can I tell you something? you got one Savior. And you ought to never, never let anything win your heart and affection away from Him. You know why? Remember what we said about families being rooted? We said that families are rooted in basically three things. A a common lineage. we got the same blood running through our veins. Well, you know that's true spiritually as well. You know why the Lord could look at these people and say, my mother, my brethren, my sister? Because He was anticipating the day when those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ would have their blood cleansed from iniquity and the blood of Christ would run through their veins. He's recognizing that there'd be a new birth and a new relationship between God and His followers, God and His believers, and that they would then have a common lineage. He's communicating the idea of the new birth. You remember when we read John 1.11 about His family, the Lord Jesus' family rejecting Him. 1.11 says He came unto His own and His own received Him. Not In other words, He came, but His family didn't believe on Him. The Jews didn't believe on Him. His own blood brethren didn't accept Him. They rejected Him. Well, what did Jesus do about that? Verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, those that rejected Him, those that pushed Him away, that said, we will not have this man to reign over us, He said, then we'll have no relationship. But those that said, hey, my blood may not run through your veins or yours through mine, but I'm a lost sinner and I need a Savior. Like that Gentile woman uh, there in in Tyre, there in Sidon that said, hey, I need help, but I don't need a Messiah, I need a Savior. uh, That were willing to take their place and acknowledge their lostness and iniquity and were willing to receive Him. You know what happened to them? Uh, They got born again into the family of God. And they got different blood running through their veins. Christ said to Nicodemus in John chapter number 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, verse 3, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's a reasonable question. We know about the new birth, and it still sounds like a reasonable question. He hadn't never heard of the new birth. 
And he that's a reasonable question. He's saying, well, I thought, I thought, I thought that family relationships came from lineage, Jesus. I thought they came from having common ancestry. I thought they came from having the same blood running through our veins. Jesus replies back and says this, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. He's saying, oh yeah, that was a natural birth. That was a physical birth. And so that caused you to be physically alive and physically part of a family. He's saying that you don't need to be a part of that family at the expense of a spiritual family. He said what you need is to have a spiritual birth. Be spiritually born again and be part of a spiritual family and have spiritual righteousness and spiritual blood running through your veins. He's saying you've got to have a new birth. You've got to be born again into the family of God. Romans chapter number 8 emphasizes this. says in verse number 14, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, that the spiritual birth creates a stronger tie than the physical birth. A more meaningful tie. A more eternal tie. Hey, listen, you can emancipate yourself from your family, but you can't emancipate yourself from your heavenly Father. You can turn your back on your on your earthly family, but you can't turn your back on your heavenly family. You're going to have to live forever in heaven with them one day. Amen. That's why I'm trying to tell you people to get along with each other. One of these days you're going to spend eternity together. What are you going to do then? Amen. Listen, there's a spiritual superior lineage of the spiritual relationship. But then let me say number two, there's the superior life of the spiritual relationship. Remember, sometimes relationships are rooted in common experiences. Uh, There are certain things, and I see it more day by day, where I am behaving and acting like my daddy did. My daddy parented through grunts and barks growing up. And I'm finding myself doing the same thing. I remember when I was young, I'd do something wrong, and I I didn't hear a word. I just said, Did your daddy ever do that? Had a grunt? You know, I hear him do that with the dog now. Isn't that strange? And I'll be sitting there in the den and my little boy will start to do something wrong. I'll go, huh? What did I just do? But I heard that all growing up. So now I'm doing it. Sometimes I'll look and see my hands resting on the steering wheel with a gold wedding band sitting around it and I'll see my daddy's hands. I'll find myself doing things, saying things the way that my mama does. And and there are certain mannerisms that me and my siblings, we share together. We have common experiences. We know that's true for a spiritual relationship as well. It produces a spiritual common life. It's interesting the way the Lord says this. In in Matthew and, and Mark, it's pretty similar. In Luke, it's a little bit different. You say, what do you think, preacher? Well, I think the Lord said all three of these things. And I think only portions were recorded in each of them. But in Matthew... The Lord says, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my mother and my brethren. In Mark, as we've read, He said, Whosoever shall do the will of God. In Luke, He says, Those which hear the Word of God and do it. But you know, all of it really boils down to the same idea. People that live like their heavenly Father. That heed His words. That imitate and emulate His life. People that do what their heavenly Father wants them to do. I don't have time to go into it. If you want, I can send you the notes later. But suffice it to say that the life that we have in Christ, the life that we live, is far better 
then whatever, whatever our natural condition was, whatever our natural family was like, I'd say this, that now that you're born again into the family of God, listen carefully, you don't have to let your upbringing be your downfall. It don't matter. You say, well, preacher, I was raised in a rough home. Well, yeah, but now God's your heavenly Father. You don't have, you don't have to live that way anymore. Preacher, you don't get it, man. You don't know what I've been through. I, I've, I've been hurt. I, I, I've been abused. I've been, things have happened in my life. Yeah, that's true. But guess what? Every bit of that, your past, every bit of it has been put under the blood of Jesus. It does not have to define who you are today. So, preacher, I'll never get over it. No, but listen, you can rise above it. You can, by grace, find that God's grace is sufficient. You can move forward and move beyond it. You can find that this life, I'm saying this, whatever your natural earthly relationships, whatever life they produce doesn't dictate what your spiritual life produces. And you know what? You know how we ought to live, how we ought to behave? i got a lot I want to preach, but i just I, I got to let you go. Amen? But, but suffice it, you know, it provides three things, a greater association. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, we got a greater family. Now we're a child of God. Now Christ is our is our brother. Now we're a part. We're, we're, uh, Paul said we are accepted in the beloved. It produces a greater conversation. So what do you mean, preacher? The way we live, the way we behave, the way we act, the way that we conduct ourselves. How many of y'all had a mom or a grandmom that said, "Hey, act like somebody"? Guess what? We ought to act like somebody. Born by the blood of God and part of the family of God, it produces in us a greater station. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, we're no more victims. Now we're victors. We're no more the conquered. Now we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. I'm saying the life experiences that you and I as believers share are far superior to anything I may have shared with my siblings. And they're far deeper and they're far more meaningful. And not only do we see the superior life of the spiritual relationship, we see the superior love of the spiritual. I, I told you, sometimes the thing that forms relationships is love. When you love somebody, when they love you. I love my children. I hope they love me. I love my church. I hope my church loves me. And, and, and as such, that, that's what forms the bond of our relationship. Can I tell you that the love wherewith we have been loved is far superior than what any earthly relationship could have ever produced. Hey, listen. God, when we were yet sinners, commendeth His love toward us when he died. The Bible says in verse 10, if when we were the enemies of Romans 5, Romans 5, 10, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we should be saved by his life. I remember talking to somebody years ago about having kids. This person didn't have any kids and they were talking about, you know, kids are, they're nasty and they're smelly and they're snotty and they're mean and they're petulant and, and all those things. They were talking about it and they, they said, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with kids being the way kids are? And I said, well, it's a little different when it's your own kid. Not because your kid is any better, but there is a certain level of culpability you feel because what you see in them is what you know to be in you. In, in other words, sometimes my kid has a big mouth. It's hard to be mad at him because I know right where he got it from. His mama. I'm saying this. We love our child. And you know part of the reason we love our child? Because they're our child. We see ourselves in them. When they do wrong, we know where they learned it from. They come by it honest. We love them because they're our child. He loved us when we were His enemy. When we were His enemy. <laughs> when we were, Ephesians chapter 2 says, the children of disobedience. 
God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ. I'm saying His love of us is what makes that bond strong. You know what it ought to produce? It ought to produce our love of Him. That's what Christ is getting at. (laughs) He's saying, you ought to love me more than you love anybody else. He's not saying don't love them. He's saying you ought to love me more. And He's saying, if they're going to make you choose, you ought to already know what the choice is. You ought to love Him more than anybody. Some of us have done a great disservice to our own spiritual walk. We've loved kids and grandkids, spouse or sibling, more than we've loved the Lord. And we've not done them a service. We've done them and ourselves a disservice. Some of us, we need to be putting the Lord before anybody in our home. Uh, or some of us, we need to be putting the Lord before anybody in our life. Say, preacher, is he going to make us choose? No, they might. And if they do, you know what the choice is. But I will tell you this, if we'll put him first, we'll love them better. We'll love them more. We'll love them more effectively. And I'll tell you, if we won't put Him first, we'll find it hard to love anybody the way that we ought to.